Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Wow. Dessa, my guest on this episode of Wheels Off, is so beyond... That's it. Full stop. She's just, she's, wow. She's got a lot going on. And I don't just mean like professionally. People talk about multi-hyphenates, but usually it's almost um, a pejorative. In the case of Dessa, she has one of those active minds that lands on something, masters it, moves on to the next thing. It's phenomenal. It's inspiring. And it comes through in full effect during the course of this conversation you're about to hear. Dessa is, I guess, best known as a musician, part of the hip-hop collective Doom Tree. During the pandemic, she released a single in the middle of each month, on the 15th of each month. It was the IDES series. She's a writer. We talk a lot during the interview about a piece that she wrote for the New York Times Magazine about the experience of being a musician during the pandemic which is fantastic. I cannot recommend it highly enough. She has released books of poetry, a book of essays, the memoirish book called My Own Devices. She helmed a the first season of uh, This Is Already Out, the second season they're about to start work on, a podcast series called Deeply Human. It was made in partnership with the BBC. She's just, she's got so much going on. I was tempted to try and drag out our conversation to just get as much as I could from her because it's all so interesting and juicy and fascinating. And y'all, if you've listened to these shows before, you know this is my favorite thing, useful. It's very useful stuff, her wisdom, her observations, and what she shares with us on Wheels Off. So I am beyond excited to welcome you to this episode of Wheels Off, wherein we welcome to Wheels Off, <laughs> Dessa. Welcome to Wheels Off, Dessa. Thank you so much for joining us. This is so great. Thanks for having me. Um, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you dialing in? I am dialing in from a sweaty apartment in Manhattan. Oh, wow. You're in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, I was under the impression you had done some time in Minnesota during the last spell. I did. I put in some time. I grew up in Minnesota and okay. pre-pandemic, I would kind of split my time between tours between Minneapolis and New York. Yeah. And how long have you been back in New York? Um, okay. So I've been kind of splitting time for probably four or five years, but oh. I've been, yeah, but I've been back here for, for a couple months. Yeah, yeah. I, I I only ask because I'm I'm north of Manhattan in the Hudson Valley, and I I wonder about 
um, New York and its reinvigoration and what it feels like to be there. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think I think there was an aesthetic boon that was sort of unexpected, at least to me, in that, you know, as indoor dining became impossible, everybody sort of moved into these makeshift structures that that then became less makeshift and more, you know, genuinely like professional gazebos and kind of like freestanding little dining rooms in the bike lanes, essentially. And watching <laughs> those structures get completely decorated with like false flowers and, uh, you know, little tiny pin lights. It's really kind of unexpectedly pretty to walk the streets of New York now. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so funny. I noticed, um, I've noticed this in your songs, um, in your podcast, in, in this, in the parts that I've read of, of your book, um, which is so great. Um, your, your ability to just land on these, um, like two word structures that always surprised me. Oh my God, the piece you wrote for the New York Times about being quiet, a, a musician being quiet during the era of the pandemic and not working, you know, it brought tears to my eyes. But so yeah. my point, my point is this, you just now saying the, the phrase false flowers. It's like, I want to now, I just want to go write a song. So. <laughs> I'm on points. <laughs> um, so, but that begs the question, what are you working on yeah. now and how does it light you up? So um, I would say for the first maybe, I don't know, six, nine, ten months of the pandemic, um, I was I was pretty still creatively, you know, kind of just preoccupied with with worry and and, you know, keeping abreast of what the whole world was engaging through. But I then started a, like a series of single songs, you know, knowing that touring was off the docket for a while. And as you're listeners probably already know you know the the normal cycle of like music creation is write some stuff run around and perform it until nobody really cares anymore than go home and write some new stuff and knowing that that cycle had been disrupted um i decided to put out a song once a month so i did a series called ides so on the 15th of every month right we put out a song and that just ended so now i'm starting to like drill a well again you know and look for what the next creative endeavor is so i've sort of lines the walls of my apartment with like big post-it notes, you know, to capture some ideas. I think I'm working on a musical maybe, which I haven't done before. Yeah. And then slowly doing some research on um, the way that humans perceive color. So I'm, I'm excitedly like preparing for a couple of interviews with some neuroscientists. Wow. And you've done a play before. I did my very first play, which is like an audio play, um, a couple months ago. Whew, man, that was like, uh, that's very different for me anyway, like a super different creative muscle to flex. So it felt like kind of boot camp for dialogue. Yeah. Do do you ever get, and, and my, my guess is no, considering the bravery with which you encounter all these new weird challenges and media that you embark upon, but do you ever get that um, it... Um, that idea that you should stay in your lane. I, I ask this because I, I struggle with this and I'm always imagining there's some audience member or critic telling me stay in my lane. You're not supposed to write fiction or whatever. Right. Do you get, do you get this? Doesn't seem like you do. I, I admit, okay, I've, I've, got, I've got my share of like artistic neuroses, hang up, <laughs> challenges, lifelong demons. Um, but that, that, I don't know why that really hasn't been one. I mean, I think, you know, I, I particularly like in my 20s was a <clears throat> not a contrarian, but also maybe not not a contrarian. <laughs> and 
and being told that explicitly to, hey, you know, if you could just focus on either um, music or writing, it'd really be good if you pick a lane. And somebody who was totally in my corner said that, you know, they're not trying to keep me down. They're trying to help me. But both of those things are hard to do well. Um, I think being told no was a a motivator. You know, it's like a wall to push off against into the pool. Um yeah. So yeah, for me, I think also like some of the some of the genre designations that we have are like more important for retailers than they are for makers or consumers of art. You know, like genres. Well, that helps you figure out like where to shelve something than Sam Goody. But how many of us are like shopping at Sam Goody's anymore? And for me, it all feels related under like the larger umbrella of language arts. Yeah, it, it, it's funny too though because how much you you mentioned earlier science, how much science plays a part in um like in in deeply human the podcast series which by the way is that ongoing or is that was that a thing and it's done we did uh like our first season had 12 episodes and mm -hmm. i start tomorrow on season two wow okay congratulations Thanks. that's great so um boy it's just so beautiful and it's so concise and it's um but it, it's so scientific and you really talk to experts and you dig into uh, like it's It'd be easy to be, you know, it'd be easy to talk about false flowers and and just and be poetic about stuff. But you really get into it. I loved the episode about the teenage brain. I've got a couple of teenagers yeah. myself. Oh, my God. But it was great. I really appreciated the the scientific approach to it. But so I wonder that like you're doing all of these things. And yes, they're all quite artistic. But um, like the science seems like it informs it so much. Is that by design? Is that just your natural curiosity? I guess, um, <clears throat> I guess it is, I, I don't want to take too much credit, you know, in retrospect for the ways that things have played out. I think a lot of artistic careers are as responsive as they are proactive. You know, you get a call that you didn't expect, you get a tour that you didn't expect, et cetera. But yeah, I think for me, I've always been sort of interested in biological sciences, particularly those that explain human behaviors. So like, how does our, how do our changing levels of hormones change the way that we might move our bodies, our joints? How does our neurochemistry change the way that like, um, like some people see optical illusions and some people are not as likely to be, to perceive them? Um, how does smoking change our color vision, whatever? So yeah, I guess it is just has felt kind of like a natural um, folding of my own interest into songwriting, but I would also just, and, and, writing but i'd also just say that like i think most songwriters mm, a lot of songwriters maybe not most i think a lot of songwriters i mean you draw from something it's not like your interest can primarily be in song no one's like and now here's except for leonard cohen when he's like the fourth the fifth and they <laughs> i mean we're writing about like the songs have to be about life and so if your only interest um you know was was indulged with blinders on in this really monomaniacal way, I think it might sometimes be harder to write about content that other people would relate to. Even if you're just writing about love, like what kind of metaphors are you using? You got to know something about flight or water or cars or something, you know, to make the art go. Yeah, right. And maybe there's there's levels you're always working on. So to your point that you you could be writing about love and also writing about the biological you know, effect of smoking on, you know, color perception or whatever. Um, so all of these things, um, I mean, we can call you a creator, right? I, I kind of drives me crazy when people say a creative. Me too. Um, <laughs> but um, at what point when you were young, and I imagine you you get into this in, in the memoir more than beyond what I've seen. What, um, was there a point when you knew, like, I'm going to make, songs i'm gonna write i'm gonna be a creative person 
did you have an epiphany moment? Mm, I definitely had the desire to do that before I felt like I had any evidence that that was a viable career path. Because I was also aware as a kid, like, kid dreams fall into not too many categories. And the world isn't populated exclusively by quarterbacks and astronauts. So, like, what are your odds? You know? And I was also, and that was also probably informed by the fact that I, I very much wanted to impress adults. And so I didn't want to seem foolish in front of them by saying, I'm going to be a ballerina. And everyone's like, okay. You know, and everyone's like, I didn't like that feeling. Um, so I wanted to pick something I could do. So for me, the interest in music um, existed for a long time before I, I felt like there was any viable professional path. In part because my mom had this really, she had a dramatically better voice than I do. And she... And I have a super serviceable voice. Like I have a pretty alto voice, but she had one of those, like, you know, she could do the Whitney um, runs, like the melismas, those really fast staircase melodies and stuff. And um, and I thought, man, I'm not even the best singer at my address. <laughs> like, this is a really competitive field. What are my odds? And then as I grew up, I just found out like, yeah, your mom had kind of a, a your mom had a really special gift and she chose to go into another field, but like mine could still work. And then listening to people like, I like uh, like a lot of sad dude music, so like Elliot Smith, you know, it's not like he has an operatic voice. I loved, I loved it. Or Tracy Chapman, you know, just unusual instruments that make music go to. Mm -hmm. So I was probably 21 when I started, twenty, and then 23 when I took it seriously. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, you mentioning a moment ago your own neuroses and... Um, and and then bringing up Elliot Smith is uh, when I lived in LA, I got to do a lot of stuff with Elliot. And there was one night when um, we were about to do a song swap, and it was me and him and Fiona Apple and John Bryan. And Fiona and Elliot are both sort of famously neurotic, right? And um, backstage before we were to go out there, John and I both, by the way, sing like just mid-range honky dudes. Like, oh, I'm going to go sing a song. <laughs> Where th those two, you know, are truly special, like you're saying, they have a gifted throat, whatever it is. Um, both of them were like terrified to go out there because they thought that their voices were bad and people were going to hate them. And if they if they think that I remember thinking at that moment, like, OK, well, I'm never going to complain again about my own feelings of imposter syndrome. I wonder for you. Like, how does it, you don't have to get into too much about how it manifests itself, but those internally generated obstacles when you've run up against them in your life and in your art, um, what have you discovered? Uh, what ways around them or over them or through them have you discovered? There's no way that I'm going to let you share that anecdote and then just move on. Okay, so when you when you heard Elliot and Fiona being like, oh, I have horrible voices, I mean, were you also thinking to yourself like, oh, that is how lousy we are at self-appraisal? Yes, Nobody's a good judge of their own skill or talent or something, or what was your... And maybe there's an inverse relationship. Maybe the most gifted among us have the most sort of self-hatred or the least amount to adequately uh, understand our own powers. And it's interesting because to me, I, <clears throat> I am s attracted to the idea that it might be the same gift that is responsible for that degree of uh, relentless criticism. Because if you have a sensibility that is sufficiently tuned to be able to guide you to these heights, then you also have a sensibility to be able to detect the distance to the summit. 
you can hear your own flaws very well for the same reason that you were able to develop the skill set that you have, you know? Right. Like the master perfumer walking past a garbage pile is going to be revolted. We, we, uh, my family got to go to Hawaii uh, a couple of weeks ago and, um, we went out on a boat on really choppy waves, a windy day to go see the Nepali coast. Uh, I and um, a pregnant woman were the two people that spent the entire trip on the back of the boat wanting to die. Like, I'm not even being hyperbolic when I say that. And and I was trying to explain to the family, like, maybe it's because like my ears are, if I have a power, it's somehow in them. And then my inner ear is also then overly sensitive. I'm trying to justify. Yes. <laughs> It's not that I'm a wimp. It's that I have a superpower. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, okay. So to me, there is like a parallel um, between that kind of phenomenon, which we, you know, might call like the princess and the pea or the Don Quixote guy, you know, we can taste the leather tongue and the wine or whatever, like this hypersensibility. Um, there is a parallel in that phenomenon to, I think the question that you asked about like internal challenges. Um, I feel like, I know that there's been like an important cultural correction in the past uh, 15, 25 years to sort of um, reconsider the trope of like the troubled artist. But I would also argue that that trope <laughs> exists for a reason. And um, I guess I'll just say in my own personal experience, there is kind of a, um, there's a double-edged sword in that in my most serene moments like I don't have why would I write anything life is working you know for me a lot of times art is the untying of a tangled knot or um, it focuses on that point of, of friction and conflict nobody tells a story where it ends exactly the same way as you anticipated what I went to the store to get bread and then I went and then I bought bread <laughs> like that's not a story you know there's nothing to interrupt the the trajectory the motive or the desires and so um, for me, you know, I, I have, um, I was diagnosed, uh, like mid twenties with something called cyclothymia, which is like a low carb bipolar sort of, um, and I know people get diagnosed with a lot of stuff that changes over their lives. I have no idea if that diagnosis would still hold, but I do notice that in my blue moments, I see connections more readily and language jumps to service for me in a way that it doesn't at other times. I wonder if that is like a self-protective mechanism that you developed really young and and it now kicks in to your benefit, like you get mm. to monetize it. I mean, it's both, right? So I would say that, you know, when I first was diagnosed and really, um, yeah, I've done like a super brief stint in a mental hospital, but enough to like spook you. <clears throat> and, um, and I was lucky to like, parents who love me, um, and, and some friends too. And I remember studying a little bit, particularly bipolar that like, um, when we dif differentiate signal to noise, which, you know, if you imagine like tuning an old style radio or a television and you got to now on, you know, you kind of filter out the fuzz to get the voices, but there's always a little bit of fuzz in the voices, um, that connections are very often easier to make neurologically. Um, in some chemical states. So like um, the way that our bodies create neurochemicals is related or at least um, a meaningful analogy for even those that we might take. So, you know, if someone does a, you know, if Michael Pollan does a psychedelic trip in, in the, 
in the rainforest, we do notice like a really reliable relaxation of self to other. And that might be partly because like we have a frontal cortex that runs around and manages what's me, what's me and what's not me, what's me, what's not me. And that relaxes on some psychedelics. So I actually think that there might be, in addition to a self-defensive mechanism, um, a neurochemical pattern that has been noticed way before I did too. Well, I like the positive spin of your thesis more than mine. Well, also, I'll also just say, like, um, to make sure that I'm not rendering this too romantic. I've also had some really, you know, lows where I was like, yo, art or no art, I got to go to the doctor. So, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to gild the lily because the um, it has sharp edges, too. But I have noticed that relationship. So and and. I'm sure we've both seen a number of examples of people who use that trope um, to just justify bad behavior, more and more bad behavior. Also, like, I think there's a balance, like what's good for the artist and what's good for the animal aren't always uh, overlapping. You know, sometimes it is good to stay up all night and type out your opus, even if you're going to be really tired in the morning and kind of feel like crap. You know, you've decided to make an exchange there. But the artist is the animal, and I can only take so much. Um, I can only withdraw on that account so much before both of them are are hosed. You know, so I think like I've taken a lot more seriously how to manage health than I used to, even if I do it imperfectly, which I do. But it's so it's become a priority instead of an afterthought. Yeah, boy, like, you you're sad. Don't worry about that. The sad won't run out. Like make sure. <laughs> you're healthy. Yeah, <laughs> the sad won't run out. Um, well, you're about, I mean, assuming it keeps, uh, the schedule it's supposed to, you're about to go out on tour. I am. I don't, what are the odds, man? Do you have any, you taking bets? You thinking about it? Not anymore. I, I have a conference call later today with my band about this. You know, and it's funny. I, I meant to ask you about this after we had stopped the recording, because this is like, you know, performer to performer question about what the hell are we doing but i mean i i think you i think this will air within the next couple of weeks and you and i will probably have announced whatever's going to happen but you're going out with uh thievery corporation and some solo shows yeah exactly uh, northeast midwest a little bit then you you are actually in georgia and um south carolina like the same days or somewhere florida the southeast basically the beginning of october the same days that my band is in those states and I'm just thinking, like, are we doing this? What's I know, I know. I'm also going to play the game that every musician plays after this call, where we compare schedules and stuff. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, like the conversation that I've been having with my friend and manager Becky um, is okay. What are the rules of engagement here? You know, I'm an opening act on some of that run, obviously, and so it's also like, gosh, who sets the rules of engagement, and how does that go? And by that, I mean, are we asking for a vaccine, you know, proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test? I mean, one of the things that blew my mind that my agent told me, and I'm, I'm kind of like the smaller fish on uh, on his roster, was that for his big acts, like people have subs on call because people on tour are getting COVID enough that you have to then call in your pinch hitter. Like, yo, let's get keyboardist number two in. Oh, my God. Of course you would. It's like a sports team. Yes. Yes. Right. You've got your, your, your farm percussionists or whatever, ready to be called up to the major leagues. And so, um, I guess, you know, some of the other conversations is like, gosh, we get like, you know, first of all, backstage is not what it used to be. The merch table is not going to be what it used to be. You know, any points of interaction, um, for great 
reasons, you know, ought to be minimized and mitigated. But that's like a really different touring experience than what I'm used to, which is a lot of like standing around and hand to handing after the show, to be honest. So. It's so funny. So you write about this in the piece that you wrote for the New York Times magazine. And um, and that paragraph, I actually read it aloud at the dinner table because I was like, guys, this is what I do. Because, you know, when I do solo shows, I go out after the show, like you said. And the best line to me was you called that you called our job a high touch job. Just that like in. And it's so funny because it really spoke to me. People aren't buying the CD because they want a freaking CD. Nobody wants a CD. Nobody they want, does. They want something that you can autograph and a picture of you holding it with them. Oh, so brilliant the way you put that. Um, wow, that means a lot. Thanks. Oh, um, yeah. Anyway, so we, we could talk about this more. And I don't know what the answer is. I Right? Um, okay, so I want in a moment, I want to ask you to distill your wisdom, which I feel like is just, I don't know, is the word profligate, right? There's a lot of it. And, um, but, but in the meantime, I, uh, we have to um, attend to the um, necessities of commerce and take a short break to hear from our sponsors. And we're back. Um, so Dessa, this is so great. Honestly, I, I've been really looking forward to talk to you and I feel like I could pick your brain all day. Um, but I see the flow charts on the wall next to you, and I'm excited for you to get back to work on your musical. I wonder if you were to come across a 21-year-old version of yourself, but working in today's world, I won't say industry, because that always grosses me out, but just a 21-year-old version of you working in today's world, I wonder what advice you might give yourself. I admit that you've caught me at a very inconvenient crossroads for this particular question. <laughs> Because I've been wondering lately about the received wisdom of, of youth and maturity. I don't know if I would have more to say to her of value than she would have to say to me in that I can't quite tell if all of this wisdom and patience I've acquired might in some part be a tiring of an ethical muscle. She was mad all the time at really great stuff. Maybe I should still be mad too. And now I'm more likely to try to perceive it from 360, to try to be empathetic to people with whom I disagree, and that's value as well. But sometimes I think that kind of aerial approach, that kind of constant subjectivism tempers some righteousness as well. That's great. I've done 70 or so of these interviews with people and nobody yet has offered to defer to their 21-year-old self as being perhaps more wise or more um, empathetic. Or, uh, I thought about that, though, when I when I was listening to the, the Teenage Brain episode of Deeply Human, um, because you make the point in there, or a scientist you interview makes the point about, was it the frontal lobe, um, which is the seat of feelings I, I i might be getting the science wrong basically we feel things more strongly at that age yeah so then i i wonder about um because i was writing songs from 15 on and, and doing that kind of stuff and i was feeling things so strongly and i wonder now as a 51 almost almost 51 year old man like am i just just do i feel things <laughs> anymore enough to make art out of them yeah. Or I mean, or, or even sometimes it feels like I feel like we've got different. So this is a really bad metaphor. Can I come up with something better? I can't. Uh, like 
it's different wool. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the experience in which you draw feels different. And I don't just mean like now I feel about different stuff. You know, I used to have a boyfriend. Now I have a kid. Now I have a mom. Like, I don't think it's just the content of our lives that changes. But I, I think like, okay, so I've mentioned Leonard Cohen already. I think he was a fantastic, you know, mm-hmm. one of the best living, you know, lyricists um, with whom I had the pleasure of like briefly sharing the planet. I think, um, I think Paul Simon is really great too. Weird stuff. And I think the kind of balance of like, okay, if you were driven just by like a furnace, you know, burning coal and anything else to touch to like 15, um, maybe there's opportunity to like venture into the surreal, like slightly more heady. Does that make sense? Like to change the songs as you change as a person. This is not me giving you counsel. This is me trying to figure out what my own trajectory is as I get older too. Uh, when you listen to those songs that you wrote when you were 15, how do you feel now? Uh, embarrassed, you know, because I was, you know, it's, it's vulnerability is by definition embarrassing, right? That's the whole point of it. Um, and so now I have to fight to make myself more vulnerable, to reveal more of myself. When back then I couldn't stop just you mm. know, op- opening the trench coat. That's okay. That's a bad metaphor. Let's keep it. Let's just, you said it, let's keep it. <laughs> I mean, it's just funny. I think in part, although I am naturally interested in science, I think that my interest in it professionally um, and as a metaphor has developed because it gives me a lens that is associated with a very clinical um, intellectualism to write about really, really sensitive stuff that I might feel too shy to write about if I hadn't like buffered it with that layer of distance, you know? So like studying my own brain and love is better than studying my own heart and love, you know? (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. Well, um, with that, I should probably let you go back to work on a musical. And I'm so excited to, to see what you come up with. I really, I just feel like there's such a high level of quality to everything you do in all these different fields. And frankly, it's, um, it's maddening. So thanks for, thanks for pushing. An amazing day to receive a kind word on art stuff. Thank you. And Fingers crossed that we both healthily might cross paths somewhere yeah. in the South. Later this- exactly. Or maybe I hope that Terminal 5 show goes off. I know that's that's always a fun big New York show. So um, thank you. And yeah, I hope in real life we cross paths. Thanks so much for being on Wheels Off, Jess. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. 
Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.